Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Sean, the host of the People's Medicine Show. I'm doing sort of a pre-intro to the show because I pre-recorded most of my intros uh, this month for the clips that I picked out and curated. So enjoy the show. I am in the background, so if you're listening to the live stream, uh, feel free to call our guest call-in number, 646-929-2463. Yeah, we could stop the pre-recorded um, uh, part of the show at any time and pick up your calls. Uh, press 1 to be placed in the queue, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll try to have a great show. Okay, now for the second intro to the show. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the People's Medicine Show. My name is Sean Mernon, and this is a monthly show. I'm recording this today on January 7th, Thursday morning, my time, and I plan to upload it later on. So this is a, an open topic type of show. Uh, I invite listener participation. You're allowed to call in or send me messages through Facebook or through email. I have an email contact set up for the show, which is peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. And my last name is spelled M-U-R-N-I-N, Sean, S-E-A-N, and I'm on um, Facebook. You can message me through that. Um, uh, so I'm having a great 2021. I hope you are, too. It feels like I woke up today and I found out that we do have a new president. So the last time I was um, recording this show, there was a, there was an election that there, that, were, that there was questions about, and there was not a clear um, majority in the Senate, and there needed to be a runoff election. And yesterday, a number of things happened. I just opened up the headlines today to find out what happened yesterday, and yesterday was January 6th, and that was the day that Congress was to certify the new president incoming and make everything official for the inauguration day, and there was a riot in the Capitol, <laughs> and the sitting president was on Twitter, and he was removed from Twitter for uh, encouraging or inciting a riot. So I do understand a little bit about democracy, how when the United States elects a president, there are different layers um, of electing the president. And yesterday was the actual last layer of democracy. So if you wanted your representatives not to certify the election, you could contact your senators in a, in a democratic way. Not, I think it's very clear cut that that's not the way to contact your representatives by storming the legislative session. <laughs> That's not really democracy, but um, being vocal all the way up until yesterday was democracy. And I, I seen some people say, oh no, they're, they hate democracy by using it. So, so one of the big topics that I've been pondering lately is logical expl explanations. And explaining yourself in a logical way and using the right words and guiding your listener through and help encouraging them to ask questions when they're confused about what you're saying 
And uh, having an open conversation is part of logic because one person will will project a fallacy and then the other person will say, well, that's quite a fallacy. <laughs> so I think the definition of logic to me is a lack of fallacy. So if you look up on logical fallacies, you'll see there's like 30 to 50 of these thought patterns that people project and it doesn't really establish truth when you're using a logical fallacy, but you could be right <laughs> while using a logical fallacy at the same time. They apply to whether you're right or <laughs> to whether you're wrong, but it doesn't seal the deal. So I've been learning a little bit more about this and how to spot it when you're listening to people talk. And my first clip was a clip I was going to play last month when I was going to do a, a podcast, but my internet connection was very spotty, and I really didn't have a lot of material last month, and I was on a 14-day lockdown because I traveled out of my state, and when I came back, I couldn't set up a 72-hour um, COVID testing that was approved by my state. I went to one of the locations to where I was in New York State, and it looked like a place where I would catch maybe not COVID. I'd probably catch something else. It was just a place that there was that I got a gut instinct. Don't go near that testing site, <laughs> even though I have no opposition to being tested. But I gave it my best try. So when I got back to home here in Hawaii, I was required to stay home for 14 days. So that would preclude me from doing the podcast just by recording it like I am today and going over to my local Wi-Fi spot and uploading it because I was on a home quarantine by government order and it was quite sort of a spiritual retreat um, because even the heaviest days of the lockdown, I always went and picked up my mail and I went and got some groceries even when there was the most extreme quarantining in my area. I still left my home and this was a completely new experience, staying home for 14 days, and I ordered Instacart, and I was so um, delighted that they, they actually picked out better meat than I would pick out for myself, and I thought that was kind of funny that when I shop for meat, I tend to go really low bar, and I don't get quality stuff. I, I look for price, <laughs> so that that gave me a little bit of an awareness of how I shop, that I really am uh, very price-focused when it comes to food. And I was really happy um, with the grocery selections of so letting someone else pick out my groceries for me, which maybe I was just lucky. And uh, people that, have, that get that Instacart service all the time, probably it is very much hit or miss if the shopper got everything that you wanted. Um, so my first clip I was going to play last month, and it's from another podcast called This Week in Virology. And at the time, there was a declaration, and this is concerning the politics of COVID-19. And at the time, I think it was in October, there was a group of 200 intellectual scientists, people, that signed something called the Great Barrington Declaration that said that we should opt for a selective lockdown of only people who are immunocompromised and 
completely open up society on a more voluntary basis. That if you don't want to be locked down and you don't feel your life is in danger, you should be able to come and go and do your business as, as you want. So this Great Barrington Declaration, I kind of um, agreed with it, I guess. I think I signed it. And so this group of um, doctors and people on the podcast this week in virology, they took a really long time rebutting it. So they, I think they took about 20 minutes. And I was like, let me clip this because I, it is helpful to understand, you know, to hear where they're coming from. They're using ad hominem. They're using the straw man um, tactic and uh, a number of others. And perhaps when we're listening to it to, and I come back, I'll, I'll be able to hear um, a few more of the fallacies that they use to try to, quote, debunk the Great Barrington Declaration. It was just a declaration and it wasn't a statement of... Um, you know, absolute knowledge, but it was a, it was an argument that perhaps the lockdowns, the way that they're currently instituted by the government are a little bit more damaging to society than allowing more people to be infected by COVID. And now there are COVID variants, which supposedly are more contagious, but perhaps less deadly and less dangerous. But there's a very um, big emphasis on perhaps because a lot of people are just assuming yes um, COVID is the most dangerous thing that we have to avoid right now and I can't imagine being a public health um, official and a person who makes decisions right now because the information that they had yesterday is different from the information we have today and it's always just more pieces of the puzzle getting locked together. So let's listen to a few of these clips from This Week in Virology. And they're rebutting um, a group of people called the Great Barrington Declaration that said that we should try to institute a, a more selective lockdown where only immunocompromised people uh, would uh, choose to um, quarantine and withdraw from society and business, in-person business. <laughs> and one of the arguments, I guess I'll come back after the clip and um, make another comment. So here's the clip, and um, I'll be back in a few. You know, having spent a number of uh, uh, days in Great Barrington, the western part of Mass really the western part of Massachusetts, yeah. uh, I said, "Oh, it's a lovely place, but this is but not beautiful. a lovely. This is not it's a lovely Tanglewood, document." Yeah, Tanglewood Tanglewood's is there. there. There's great hiking. There, yes, very um, nice. Couple of even good fishing. If yeah, there's good, good there's good lake fishing. Um, there's some and, good, streams, uh, good streams up there. A couple. Okay. Of them. Okay, I haven't tried the stream. So this document, yeah. this website document, is actually an insult to the niceness of Great Barrington. Is because it, uh, the, the town of Great Barrington should lodge a protest, I think, for having their name associated with it. I think this they protest. actually have come out and uh, denied against it. Yeah, I, good. Yes. So this is uh, a, a document which says, okay, we know that it's mostly old people who are at risk. So let's keep them. Who cares? Let's keep them. <laughs> Let's not disrupt our society for this little virus. Exactly. Let's keep the old people under quarantine. Let everybody else go back to their lives, and that'll be fine. And this is signed uh -huh. by, which is, of course, is nonsense. 
because it's not just old people who are at risk. If we did a calculation for how many 20 to 30 year olds there are in the U.S. and how many of those get sick, there'd be a lot of sick people and deaths as well. So this is ridiculous assumption. And the idea that you can actually keep older people away, it's not just older people in nursing homes, folks. It's older people like me and Dixon who are, you know, in the world teaching and so forth. This is just nonsense. And the, what's killing me is it's signed by people with degrees of various sorts and university affiliations, although I didn't see a single virologist there. Um, I didn't recognize any names. I, I haven't looked at it recently, but I didn't I'd recognize love to know what the age they, group they was. Do have, they do have relevant degrees and, and faculty positions or affiliations with various universities, so it has this air of credibility about it. There are so many levels on which this is just wrong. Correct. I mean, I mean, as Vincent said, That's it's right. not That's right. the, the whole notion that, oh, young people are not harmed by this is wrong. They're yeah, their their death rate is lower, but it's not nothing. Um, right. You really don't want to get this virus. And and there's after effects also. And there are, after you don't effects, die. And there are I mean, there sure. are kids that have died of this. So nobody exactly. is safe. Exactly. Um, there's also uh, a lot of people haven't really gotten their heads around this notion, but. As we've learned more about this virus, it's becoming clearer and clearer that the whole idea of accomplishing herd immunity against this particular virus may be off the table. That's right. Because we now know, we now have good, reliable case reports from people who've had multiple infections with SARS-CoV-2 where they got the virus, they got over it, they cleared the infection, they had antibodies against the virus. They got infected again, and we know this because in order to know this for sure, you have to sequence the whole genome of both viruses. We know they got it again, separate infection, and, you know, it grew in them, and they were capable, they were contagious. They were capable of spreading it. So given that that's the case, just within the six-month time frame that this can happen with this pandemic, um, we know that immunity is not sterilizing and durable for everybody it might not be sterilizing and durable for anybody right so the the whole underlying concept between this behind this herd immunity approach is just proven wrong right and, and i will i will just point out that alan is talking about sort of naturally acquired herd immunity yes. um not necessarily immunity that comes from a vaccine um right. and so we it is possible that a vaccine could induce that type of immunity. And that's why keeping measures in place uh, until we have a vaccine is important. It's not as if we're throwing out the vaccine too here. No, 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 no. So it's, it's possible with a vaccine since the trials are ongoing now and we won't really have results Mm -hmm. until toward the end of the year. um, The, the vaccine could have this same problem. We've got like nine of them in clinical trials already. So it seems something's going to get us to good immunity. Um, But even if we have a vaccine, even if all of our vaccines have the same problem, that they don't provide complete perfect immunity, that you could still get infected with the virus, if they're protective against disease and they don't have, you know, bad side effects like the virus does, then the vaccine's going to be a huge step up. What we'd like is a vaccine that gives sterilizing immunity, and we really hope we get that. Um, but in terms of sending people out to get infected with the virus in, and getting it's insane, it's 
not going to work. I mean, just on a fundamental level, before we even get to the ethics of it, it will not work. I have to just say that we are having a spike globally in infections yes. now. And it is yes. in part due to the fact that people have gone back to school. And listen to what yes. they say here. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular oh. activities such as sports should be resumed. This is ridiculous. It's insane. How many teams have had outbreaks amongst them? And the coaches are now youngsters. So yep. th this whole thing is crazy. Was, the idea that you no, can segregate. Onionta, Onionta, right? Yeah, Please. just this past mm -hmm. week in MMWR, there was a um, report of a super spreader event from a youth hockey game. Yes. Yeah. Well, 700 students at uh, the State University of New York at Onionta were positive. The president under pressure because they did nothing. She did nothing. She resigned. So now they're looking for a new president to, to set the law down and to, to reestablish safe principles. But this whole idea not being practiced. This whole yeah. idea that you can keep the at-risk people segregated is just ridiculous because they work too. They have jobs, right? Well, and there's also, no, there's also the issue that if, <laughs> if the young people are out there spreading the virus, are, are we assuming that young people never have any contact with older people? That, that's exactly what these people right, are thinking. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, the right. thing. that's exactly We're, we're right. all connected. And right. I, I can't imagine a way that you would ever completely block off connections between different groups. That doesn't make any where, sense. Where is your so nursing right. staff so at the right. nursing home coming from? Where is that's your, right, I mean, that's just, right. It's how do you, exactly yeah. right. who are your grocery clerks? No thought. Out buy, just, no thought no, at all. Coach, the head coach for the University of Alabama, Lou Saban, tested positive for the coronavirus. And he came on TV a, without a mask to explain how he was so amazed that he caught it because he didn't do anything wrong. He always wore a mask. He always safe distanced. And he never hung out in crowds. And then they cut away for a commercial, and it's an Aflac commercial. And there is Lou Saban without a mask in front of a whole bunch of people talking about what Aflac will do for you in terms of your <laughs> insurance. And of course he was around TV producers and assistants that he was getting makeup on and everything else, of course, without a mask. So, you, hey, Lou, you wonder where you caught it. Take a look at your own ad. So I want to point out that this <clears throat> website with the declaration, the declaration itself is very brief. It has absolutely no documentation whatsoever. That's crazy. It puts out this thing in broad strokes, even though there are you know, uh, uh, people from, you know, high end institutions with uh, uh, what a, what look like appropriate uh, credentials on it. Uh, and there's no, no documentation, no papers, and they don't, they don't address any of these issues that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, so it's, very uh, sad. it's and, crazy. And as a journalist, I see something like this that's just completely <clears throat> way off base. And I have to ask, who's bankrolling it? Uh, and as soon as you ask that question, uh, you get a really interesting answer here uh, because they even admit their funding source, which is very nice of them. Um, you could you could photo search their locations and some of their pictures and get it as well. Um, they are backed by the American Institute for Economic Research, which is a libertarian think tank whose revenues come primarily from oil company investments and that's strongly linked to the Koch brothers. And if you there know you anything about that outfit, there you know you that their main mission is to further enrich billionaires um, at the expense of everybody else. And that's what's going on here. 
interesting. I love it. They're, they're, the wiki site says their holdings include a wide range of fossil fuel companies along with tobacco giant Philip Morris. Yes. Yum. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Emergence of Death, that's, uh, that's pretty much who you're dealing with. I just here. want to say to all the professors um, and clinicians who have signed this, you should be ashamed of yourself for yes. supporting yeah. this because there's no scientific basis for any of this. And what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Right. Unfortunately, I, it validates uh, 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 certain elements of our society who think it's a good idea not to do anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, read and the Swedish and, reports, and you'll find out that's not true either. And, yeah. uh, and that's too bad. <laughs> well, yeah. so I think there's one other piece about sort of separating the populations that people sometimes forget. Um, as an immunologist, as an immunology professor, I don't know if this makes me unique, um, but everyone likes to tell me about their immune system. Um, really? Yes. Really? And, and so there Brianna, are, I think there are or something. No, not but, but I, a fair number of people who I know have told me about medical conditions that make them immunosuppressed or mm. medications that are that they are on um, that are immunosuppressive. Um, and many of those people are people who you might see in your daily life and not think of as a vulnerable person. Um, yet because of whatever those things that they felt to, they wanted to disclose to me um, are, I know that they, those people are. Um, are we asking them to stay home and sort of disclose this to everyone else? Are we saying that they aren't valuable and they should go back to work? There are a lot of people here that we're not thinking about when we think about yeah. who is vulnerable. Yeah. And if you look at the, the risk profile for COVID-19, uh, it's not just age. Age is the really easy to identify thing. Yes, if you're if you're over 60, I mean, heck, if you're over 50, you're getting into the yeah, the risk goes way up. But if you look at what are the conditions that increase your risk of developing serious COVID-19, you go down that list, it, it ends up describing over half of Americans. Right. You know, it's like high blood pressure and Type 2 diabetes, That's sclerosis right. and obesity. And you, got and you, you, got you go it. through you this list, it. you're like, That's right. That's right. how many people don't qualify in some way? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. And, you and, and you may have one of those and not even realize that a lot of people have poorly managed hypertension and, and just... Uh, I will. I will say that uh, uh, my wife and I have become regular watchers of the PBS NewsHour recently. Oh yeah. And uh, they had on either last night or the night before uh, Angela Rasmussen Vincent from Columbia, uh, virologist from Columbia, who's uh, one of their go-to people about things uh, virological, and she did a very nice job of uh, trashing this document. So at oh, least good. in some uh, arms of the media, uh, it's getting appropriate pushback. Yeah, but you know as well as I do, Rich, that people watch what they uh, agree That's with. Right. And, That's uh, right. And you need to set up your filter bubble. Okay, that was a clip from This Week in Virology, uh, episode 673. So I'm going to play um, two of the other episodes. That first episode that I played was in... Um, October, and I noticed that they mentioned that there were nine vaccines that were in uh, clinical trials, or and now the latest number I heard that worldwide there's like 15 different vaccines in development, and that really is a human feat that people are united to do a vaccine and um, try to make 
people feel more safe and to increase our immunity. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm like go go. Let's um um let the world of capitalism um decide what's the best vaccine. Right now, I'm thinking the Chinese vaccine may be the most effective because it'll be tested on the most people <laughs> in the shortest amount of time. But I'm not sure. And I'm still waiting to find out more about the um, incoming vaccines that are going to be effective against COVID. Uh, there was so many different points of their objection to uh, a, dec a declaration. And one of the objections I heard them talk about was a lack of documentation attached. And I'm like, I think it's just a declaration. And it's that's um, it, it's funny because they they said, you know, and the different argumentative things of why they um, objected to this declaration <laughs> was a pretty interesting. Um, so I guess there was a lot of pushback in their audience and more people um, contacted them saying, hey, explain yourself further. What's wrong with the Great Barrington Declaration and what's wrong with the people who um, signed this declaration? Uh, and they were like, yeah, selectively, some people are connected to very evil corporations. And One more brevia. Uh, there was an article, an opinion this week uh, by Krugman in the Times about the Great Barrington Declaration I wanted to let you know about. It has some interesting back, back information, which I think Alan Dove alluded to, but it's a little more specific. Atlas and other administration officials. So Scott Atlas is the president's uh, go-to person for COVID-19, but he is, of course, not an infectious disease person or an epidemiologist, and his views have been widely criticized. Atlas and other administration officials have reportedly been strongly influenced by the Great Barrington Declaration, a manifesto on behalf of herd immunity that grew out of a meeting at the American Institute for Economic Research. What do we know about this institute? Well, it is not surprisingly linked to the Charles Koch Institute. And a perusal of his website reveals that until recently, it devoted much of its time to climate denial, putting out articles with titles like Brazilians should keep slashing their rainforest. More recently, however, the Institute's focus has shifted to COVID denial. Last month, for example, it published an article lauding Governor Kristi Noem of South Dakota, whose refusal to take action against coronavirus has turned her state into what the article called a, quote, fortress of liberty and hope protected from the grasps of overbearing politicians, end quote. Since then, of course, South Dakota has experienced an explosion of infections and soaring hospitalization and is now seeing a rapid rise in COVID-19 deaths. So, um, uh, you know, I've had many conversations with people who say, oh, there's so many academic types and clinicians on this Barrington Declaration, but it's being pushed by this institute with a, an agenda. And as Rich said, there's no data in the declaration. So you have to look at the data. I've had many interviews where people say, well, what are these professors and doctors? How do I take that? I said, you have to look at the data and there are no data here. You're smart. You can figure it out. If there's no data, go look for it. And if there's not, just don't believe it, right? Okay, so that was another clip. That was short. 
two-minute clip, and that was addressed in episode 676 of This Week in Virology. And then they skip another episode and they play another um, segment about this great Barrington Declaration, and they go on for, I think, 24 minutes, and they do sort of a round-robin uh, discussing their objections to the uh, Declaration and to the people and the forces who signed this Declaration which is really interesting because they're not mentioning exactly what it is. They're just stating how wrong it is. And, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting argumentative technique to, like, veil the other person's position. So, yeah, I'm really learning a lot about um, argument and um, how to have discussions where logic unfolds instead of trying to cover up the other person's points. So this next clip is about 24 minutes, but it's absolutely, I found it absolutely fascinating enough to, um, you know, make a clip of it and to share it on this program. So enjoy, and I'll be back in about 24 minutes. Uh, episode 673, Wake Up and Smell the Pandemic, led me to write, you all came down soundly and with great moral judgment against the authors of the Barrington Declaration. My question for you is, how does a correct understanding of science lead you all to condemn this declaration, which is a value judgment and policy opinion? Don't you also have to add in some of your own underlying personal and political values to get there, such as perhaps you all value reduced risk to physical life over personal liberty? Or don't you believe there is much risk from unintended consequences of this level of public health intervention in the functioning of society? But how are your views on either of these trade-offs derived from your scientific expertise? Would you all consider separating your political and personal values from your scientific thoughts when you pass judgments on things that get into the political realm? Both are good to have and express, but it helps to distinguish between them. If I, I feel that if generally secular, liberal-leaning <laughs> academic scientists could do a better job of separating their values from their factual knowledge, they could communicate better to much of the right-leaning segment of America. Dave is from Superior, Colorado, uh, where on October 21st, it was 70F and the air is smoky due to continued front range fires. All right. So I try to keep my comments based on the science. But when politicians talk about science and when they're wrong, it's hard to separate the two. And you may think I'm being political. Um, so I try. I really agree that I don't want to mix in politics, but uh, if politicians are making incorrect scientific conclusions, I have to correct them just on the basis of science. Now, here, this, this Barrington Declaration, the idea is to open up society because we can do it, right? That's a political issue and a social, sociological issue. And what we did is come down on it because there's no scientific evidence for some of the conclusions they made. For example, we just did a paper showing that kids get infected way more than we think. Don't you think they're going to spread it to other people if that's the case? That's scientific data. They had no data in that uh, declaration whatsoever. And the other is that the idea that you can simply hide all the older people who are the most at risk and, and they, therefore there would be no issues is absurd. Uh, it's scientifically absurd because older people mix in with others. They have to. Not all old people can stay home, and old meaning, say, 60 or 65 and older. Uh, so there's no scientific way that you can do that. I am not saying anything about the economic issues here. I'm just talk talking about the science. That's what I'm doing here. 
And if you want to consider the economic issues, that's your job. Uh, the Barrington Declaration ignored the science. There was no science in it. And that's why we come down hard on it. The, our position has always been you can do things to mitigate transmission. You can resume certain activities with face masking, segregation, low density of people, for example. But you cannot open up fully as if nothing were happening. That is scientifically incorrect. So that's what I think. What do you think, Rich? So I read this two days ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Uh, first of all, I want to um, uh, credit Dave with um, asking this in a in a nice way. Exactly. Okay? Yes. He's saying he's saying thanks for the show, and he's saying there is a mixture here of science and politics. And it would be doing everybody a favor if when you describe this stuff, you could, I mean, he's not saying don't discuss the politics. He's saying, make it clear when you're talking about politics. Okay. We'd prefer not to talk about politics if we can get away with it. But he also, it, you know, he says it's hard and it is hard. So, uh, first of all, I want to say that as something that we've said before, which is, a lot of what we're talking about in dealing with the pandemic is public health. And I want to go back to a quote from uh, a colleague of mine who was a public health expert from some time ago, who says public health by definition is a mixture of science and politics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and so to some extent, if you're going to make assessments or judgments or have opinions about public health, there's going to be, by definition, politics mixed in there. That doesn't mean that we can't uh, that we can't try and make the distinction. But I just wanted to to remind that uh, yeah. is that yeah. it's it's hard. They are mixed up in a in a public health situation. To me, the science is first of all there's a bit of science that's really important, and that is we've seen time and time again, and you uh, mentioned this, Vincent, that uh, our behavior. Um, influences is, uh, I think, a major influence, the major influence on the disease burden in a community. Okay. Uh, and behavior, I'm talking masking, social distancing, uh, hygiene, in particular, hand hygiene. And you can throw testing in there as well, if you want as well. But those, those are behaviors that individuals uh, can uh, moderate. Uh, and when, so it's a, it's a community thing. And if everybody follows certain behaviors, it decreases the, uh, uh, um, disease burden. If people don't follow the procedures then it increases the disease burden. And it seems to me more or less in proportion to how much people, uh, follow the procedures. So that's a fact that's science. And then the other bit of science that you pointed out, uh, Vincent, is actually the lack of science in the uh, Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, they suggest that the mitigation could be applied selectively in a fashion so that uh, the at-risk individuals uh, were shielded from the infection and the lower not at risk population uh, is you let the 
let the infection go. And by the way, if you do that, you can open up the economy better. Okay. Uh, and the problem is that there's no, there's no good data to say that that selective approach would work. They don't provide anything. It's just the only thing I, the only thing I really say is nurse, you could isolate nursing homes, but there's the, the at-risk population is much more dispersed uh, than otherwise. So I think that's the science, that there's a lack of science in the Great Barrington De Declaration, and there's also science that says that community behavior uh, influences the disease uh, burden. There is a value judgment that comes into this, okay, because the problem is there's a trade-off, okay, and that is with the mitigation procedures that we have available to us as we understand them now, and this could change, um, uh, some of the mitigation procedures involve putting restrictions on some community activities. And the best example, though it's not the only one, is bars, okay? That's a, a, a potential super spreading environment, all right? And we, and we know that, that's science as well. Um, and so if you apply the mitigation, then there's economic harm that results from mm -hmm. that, okay? And it's actually, it's, it's selective. Now that could be mitigated too. There are ways to do that. That really does get out of the realm of science and into politics. But so there is a, I, I confess, okay? And here I'll, if you, uh, I'm separating science from, I don't know if it's politics, but it's morality, Okay. I confess that I put greater value on somebody's life than I do on somebody's livelihood. Sacrificing both is uh, a tragedy, okay? Either one. But uh, if I, if, if, especially if I can help them out economically, if I can uh, uh, save a life by uh, adopting a community behavior, even at some uh, economic risk, uh, then the morality in me says, I'd like to do that. Okay. But that's, that's mm -hmm. me. That's my morality. Those are my value judgments. So let me go back to two of his sentences. My question for you, how does a correct understanding of science lead you to condemn this declaration, which is a value judgment and policy opinion? And that's the problem. There's no science in it. Uh, the assumptions they make are incorrect. So how can such a thing be of any value if the underlying science is wrong? And the second statement, don't you also have to add in some of your own underlying personal and political values to get there, such as perhaps you all value reduced risk to physical life over personal liberty? And and Rich has mentioned this as well. I don't think wearing a face mask is an imposition on your personal liberty if it's going to protect lives. So yes, I am I am interested in saving people's lives. I think humanity's lives are worth saving. And I think the the role of a government is to help save lives at many levels including healthcare and in a pandemic to mitigate it. Uh and if there's no way around it. I'm not going to say I don't value life and therefore go back to it. That's just the way I'm wired. Probably Rich is wired the same way as well. But uh, I agree we can say that if you want. But, um, I, I mean, if you didn't value life, you would just say go back to life as usual and let this thing rip through and lots of people will die. And I don't think a lot of people want to do that. Some people do, clearly. But that's inhumane, frankly. It's like doing a challenge trial. It's not ethical. 
And to make the distinction Dave, Dave wants to make, yes, that's a value judgment. Yes, that's a morality judgment, okay, that we're making there. That's, uh, the science says that if you don't behave as a community, people are going to die. The value judgment is I don't want people to die, okay? And I think yeah, one of the yeah. really important things about this is uh, if there's, if there's a, this virus is a teacher, okay? And it's teaching us, trying to teach us that we're a community, Okay, and so even if this thing doesn't hurt you, okay, your behavior relative to this thing could potentially hurt somebody else. Okay, now there, you know, is now we get into more value judgments, more politics. Is individual liberty more important than the community? You decide. My own value judgment is that uh, a fairly, uh, really minor compromise to my individual liberty, if you want. I don't even think of it that way. Wear a face mask. Not a big deal. Okay? Keep your distance. That's a little harder when you talk about, uh, you know, somebody's livelihood. If they have a bar and you tell them uh, they've got to close their bar, that's a tough one. But there are political mechanisms for mitigating that as well. I think there's a path through this, okay, that minimizes the damage on both sides, okay. But I'm not, I'm not the politician. So we talk a lot about on TWIV, vaccines, antivirals, understanding how viruses cause disease to prevent it. This is all in with the idea of reducing human suffering. So. I don't understand how you can accuse us of valuing reduced risk to physical life over liberty when we're all about mitigating virus infections. Would you rather no one got immunized? Would you rather we didn't develop antivirals so everyone with HIV AIDS would would die or be on a course to, to really poor health? It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, so this this question is absurd, uh, I think, to most humans. We want to do things to help people have good lives. And it's not just infectious diseases, of course. It's every disease known to humans, cancer, diabetes, uh, neurological diseases, dementia, Alzheimer's. We're trying to mitigate it so people have better lives. That drives us. And what you are saying, it seems, is that there's a fraction of people who don't care and should just let things fall as they will. And we're just not going there. We were there years ago and the, and the life expectancy was in your mid-30s and society decided that was not acceptable. I, I don't know. It just seems weird to me, Rich, that this is an, op, this is an alternative. Yeah, well, I, don't, uh, I, I think, the, I think the, at a minimum what he's asking for is simply to make a clear distinction between what's just the hard-assed uh, uh, objective, not impassioned science on the one hand. Okay? Yeah, sure. And on the other hand, uh, how do we how do how do we use that to shape the politics? Or how? What's the distinction? Where does the science end, and the value judgments and stuff yeah. begin? And all he's really asking is to make that distinction clear. Yeah, I okay? mean, I understand. It's just I've always done TWIV. My whole career, I've always worked with the idea of helping people's health and lives, right? Yeah. So it's it's odd for me in this situation to have to state 
what what my values are. Well, we can do well, that for sure. Yeah, but in 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 some ways, in some ways, it's uh, potentially even helpful to say, yeah, okay, I, this is the science, and by by rather than imposing our values on somebody, point out what the value judgments are and ask, given this science, what would your value judgment be? Okay, and uh, if they if their value judgment is uh, uh, I would, I think it's okay for a million people to die, uh, and keep the, uh, economy going, uh, because that's more important, uh, then that's their value judgment. They got to own it. Okay. That's not my value judgment. That's not, that's not where I come down. And I want to add one more thing. And that is, I said, this virus is a teacher and it's teaching us, trying to teach us that we're a community. This is just a warning shot. The big guy is climate change. That's another situation where uh, at bare bones, it's the economy versus the planet. Okay. Uh, And the fact, the science is that we're liberating billions of years worth of stored carbon in the planet into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels in uh, what in geological time must look like an atomic bomb, must look like a nuclear winter. It's this huge explosion of carbon going off because we're digging all this stored stuff out of the ground and spewing it into the atmosphere, okay? And we're doing it as a community. It's poisoning the planet. It's, uh, and the only way we're going to get out of that is to once again own up to our responsibility as a community and do something about it. My own personal value judgment is the planet, we can make adjustments to our economy, painful as they might be, to save the planet. That's a value judgment. The fact is that we're poisoning the place. And it's a community, a community thing. Yeah, it comes down to economics. Some people don't want to make those adjustments for economic reasons. And no, absolutely, it's, it's it's exactly the same thing. In order to save the planet from dying, uh, some businesses are going to suffer. All right, uh, but they're going to suffer in the long run uh, anyway if you don't take the action now. So, and it's a community thing. We have to do, take responsibility for it as a community. I mean, in both both examples, the pandemic and climate change, the strategy is to deny that any of it exists, right? As instead of saying, you know, I don't want to pay the economic price for these mitigations, they just ah, just the, the virus is not a problem for young people, and climate change doesn't really exist. You deny it, and that's so the the Barrington Declaration and climate change. Denial is all funded by the Koch brothers, right? We learned that last time, and the the mode is to just say no, and and a lot of people will believe them because they don't know otherwise. They don't know how to figure out the truth, and well, that's where science. I mean, I don't do climate change. This is virology, but that's where I tell you the facts about the viruses and why what they're saying is wrong. And that's why that's why Dave's distinction is important because yeah. a lot of people Absolutely. spend a lot of time listening to uh, stuff that is not factual. 
all yeah. right, and yep. basing their judgments on that. And it's important for us to make the distinction that uh, the fact is that community behavior influences the uh, uh, virus, the disease burden from the virus, and it takes a community effort to keep it under control. Same goes for climate change. The, The virus is real, climate change is real, and in that case, it's the community that's causing it, and it's the community that's going to uh, have to address it down the in the long run. Those are the facts, right? How you deal with those, how you apply your own values, your morals, and your politics uh, is is another thing. I have my own set of morals and values. I think as a community, we ought to work together. Um, uh, to deal with uh, both of these things, even though it's going to be painful in places. But that's just me. All right. Rich, take uh, one more email from Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we could have that discussion. Like I said, I've been it's good turning that over in my head. Uh, thanks thanks to Dave. I do agree that yeah. it's nice when it's put in a kind way rather than yeah. yelling at he put us. put it in a nice way. He asked us to make the distinction. Yeah. There's the distinction. As clear as I can get it. If we didn't get it right, Dave, write us back. <laughs> okay, so that was a clip from This Week in Virology uh, 678. And then they addressed a letter from a listener named Dave who um, but these are really interesting conversations to have because a lot of people feel the societal harm of having these uh, selective type of, of lockdowns uh, are harmful. I went um, and bought things at a, a large box store yesterday, and I didn't do curbside pickup. I went into the store and went through a checkout line, and I'm like, I don't know. Um, I guess um, going through a checkout line uh, narrow um, aisle where people <laughs> go through, I guess is a lot uh, less risk than being at a bar or restaurant without a mask where people are laughing and screaming and um, breathing heavy. And yeah, it's just a really interesting thing that there's a, a large number of our population that want the lockdowns to stop and to um, transition to a different type of, um, you know, selective um, voluntary um, quarantine. I think it is great that these businesses have been able to transition pretty quickly to, um, if you want to have your um, things um, brought outside to the parking lot, you can. And it was funny that I just made that um, that call for myself to go into a big box store yesterday and go through a checkout line and um yeah i was just considering the risks that i take um where there are things uh set in place to um you know just uh order the stuff and then come by the store and pick it up outside so these are all value judgments i thought it was really interesting though that they got off the science that they um maintain that a lot of people will die if we don't continue this type of lockdown um, versus the societal harm, which will also cause early death, uh, where people can't go out and work and feed themselves and build their life. 
So, um, yeah, these are really opposing sort of values that a lot of people put, um, yeah, capitalism and the right to thrive ahead of this big macro plan to isolate everyone, get a, get a portion of the population vaccinated, and wait. And looking at the history of the 1918 uh, pandemic, this, these um, science, value judgments, politics, they all just unfolded, I think, over a two or three year period. And yeah, and they think that I've heard this thing recently that the whatever caused the Spanish flu is still here. <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny. The things that I hear, you know, I pick up um, little bits and pieces of that people say. And then the other thing that um, people are saying is um, this is a new novel type of virus where even though you test for antibodies, that you will be able to, um, there's proof undeniable proof that some people who've tested for antibodies can be reinfected. But um, from what I understand, these antibody tests are not that accurate. They only detect whether you've had previous coronavirus infections and not, it doesn't prove whether you've had the novel coronavirus or these new variants, which are supposedly um, more contagious, but perhaps less dangerous, and that word perhaps is funny because we don't know if, if it's more dangerous or less dangerous. It appears that the new variants are less dangerous and less deadly, and a lot of things probably play into that, whether um, they're doing early treatments or people um, are recognizing things. So yeah, as far as early treatments, this next clip really kind of answers a question that I've um, raised perhaps on this uh, podcast before the why were they putting so many people on ventilators and why was ventilators such a big thing and it turns out it was used as um, a protocol to prevent a hospital from be becoming too infectious because um, so yeah uh, this next clip is from Alex Berenson who appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast in this past month so this is a brand new um segment that isn't left over from the show I was gonna gonna do last month. So enjoy Alex Berenson on Joe Rogan explaining some of the policies early on in the COVID um, pandemic, uh, especially as far as New York State and ventilators, because uh, I was always wondering about this question. And this answers a lot of my um, questions. Back in May or back in March, we were told 15 days, 15 days to slow the spread. Let's mm. not have the hospitals be overrun. And at some point, maybe it was in April, maybe it was in May, somehow this became no one can ever get sick and die from COVID. It is wrong that this disease exists and we have to do everything to stop it, no matter what the consequences. And you mentioned businesses. Businesses are, are important. But to me, what's even more important is what we're doing to our kids, yeah. what we've done with school closures, what we've done with normalizing the idea that being outside with your friends is dangerous. We are, we are, we are screwing over our kids in the worst possible way. Well, I think we had an idea of what COVID was going to be. I, I don't know. I certainly did for the first few weeks. I was like, this is going to kill everybody. <laughs> I thought I was yeah, going to kill yeah. like 10% of the population. Yeah. I was really worried about it. Yeah. I remember being in the supermarket 
stocking up and thinking, Jesus Christ, like this is, this feels so crazy. But I also remember thinking it was going to last two weeks. Yep. And now here we are, still reacting this way. We're now deep into January, or deep into December, almost into January. Yep. Um, a lot of my friends have caught it, including young Jamie over here. <laughs> uh, Jamie beat it in a day. Uh, Tony Hinchcliffe has it now. He was sick yesterday, and today feels good. And this is the case with so many people, yep. whereas if they got the flu, I knew I know a lot of the same people that have got the flu, they were knocked down into the dirt for three or four days, maybe yep. a week, maybe two weeks. Um, it's different than we thought it was going to be, but we're still reacting like it was the same thing. And then there's this this fear porn that everybody likes to peddle. It's this weird thing where everybody wants to think that, you know, if you catch it, you have a 10% chance of dying or the sky is falling. And it's just, it's weird how uh, people want to pretend that it's still what it used to be. And they want to say, you know, you should think about this because 300,000 Americans have died. And you want to go, stop. No, 300,000 Americans have died from COVID that also had a lot of other stuff. How many people have died just from COVID? And it's a relatively small number in comparison. It's, it's, it's like a, a bad flu year, right? Um, so it's complicated. Here's here's the thing, and and um and I don't know if you if you and you know this is as I said I got all this stuff for you, but the the booklets, I especially the first one, which is about how, uh, death counting, how we go how we count a COVID death. Go, I go into this in detail. Okay, well let's talk so, about that right away. So okay, there's. Here's the most fundamental fact about COVID that the media doesn't report accurately: how stratified the risk is by age. So you mentioned you mentioned you know people who are who are, might be overweight or have diabetes. All that stuff does add to your risk. What really adds to your risk is age. And people and people don't really I, I think this is true of almost everybody. People don't really have a good idea of what what risk is, right? So if I say you know like it's riskier to be old and have COVID than to be young. You might think, okay, it's like two to one or three to one or five to one. It's kind of like normal risks. Like what are the odds that the Jets are going to beat the Rams? Like one in 10, you know, last week. And that happened. The Jets beat the Rams. Um, this risk is not like that. It's like somewhere between 110,000 times the risk. Of At what older, age? Uh, so, Maybe 75 versus 25, 80 versus 25. If you look at who dies from this, it is overwhelmingly people over 65, 75, 85. Okay, the the median age of death in in European countries, where you know we're, which are a little bit healthier than the U.S., is in the low 80s. But that doesn't really tell you the real risk because what you need to understand is that only two or three percent of the population is over 82 or 83. Now, what about people like, there was that guy who's a Broadway actor who was a young, healthy-looking guy who got sick and wound up dying from it. So there, that's going to happen. So there's two issues. First of all, that happens to people with the flu. I can point you to stories from 2018 where, you know, young, healthy teacher dies of the flu. It just was never reported nationally this way. Right. That's A. B is if you look at those cases Oftentimes there's weird idiosyncratic stuff happening, of which the number one thing is a lot of those people are put on ventilators very early. They're yeah. put on ventilators and they never came off. We're not having that as much anymore. And if you look, the average age of death is actually creeping up now, it looks like. And, okay, so that's one. Is that the risk? Let, it, can we talk about that? Yes. The ventilators? Yes. So what happened? So what happened was in March especially, back when everybody was terrified, 
there's there there's there's something called a nebulizing procedure. So there are procedures that that where you're where you're inserting tubes into people and it releases a lot of um, you know aerosols from them. And the fear was this is going to get aerosolized and the nurses and the doctors are all going to get sick and die and we're going to have no medical staff. Ventilator avoids that problem. Okay. So the, the feeling was, let's ventilate very early. This is a really serious disease. Let's get everybody we can on ventilators. That's when, remember when we needed 100,000 ventilators, 200,000 ventilators? That was the idea. Okay, we're going to ventilate really early. Turns out that was a terrible idea. It turns out that, as, as Elon Musk likes to say, you know, your lungs, if you, if you ventilate too early, it's just like a meat bellows, and you can blow out people's lungs if you overventilate. And it looks like that happened. I will tell you, not that, we're not, not that we don't use ventilators for COVID, but right now in the United States, I believe there are about 8,000 people on ventilators. Can, Ooh, I, can I stop you for a second? Yes. Like meat bellows, so like bellows, like a fireplace bellows, yeah, yeah. right? So you're just so what pushing is, this air in, and, you're, and like if you push it in at pressure that's too high, you can just blow out people's lungs. So you re- literally destroy their lungs. Yes, yes, we did that with people. And, and, and it became clear. It became pretty clear pretty early on, and, and, they, and they tried to stop doing it, and they have stopped doing it. You know, so nurses, that's why they were saying that 80% of the people they put on ventilators wound up dying. It's not just that they were so sick by the time they got to ventilators they were dying. That's right. And they, they, they couldn't save them. It they, was just that the, the ventilators themselves did damage. That's wow. Correct. And that and I don't think that actually too many people would argue that even in hospitals. I can point you to stories that have been written about this and I can point you to sort of in-hospital discussion of this. Um again, there is a role for ventilators for people who really cannot breathe on their own, but this early ventilation that we that we used back in March and April killed people. And some of the people it killed are people who were younger who probably would have survived. Hey, that was Alex Berenson on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, and I have one more clip that I want to play with Alex. He's a investigative reporter. He he seems to be asking the right questions, and uh, he understands at the end of this clip that um yeah all the answers are still not in, but it he shows on uh, the logic behind uh, wanting to count um, people's deaths. Uh, whether 30 days or 60 days from the time they've tested, they can say that they died of COVID or from COVID or with COVID. But it's a fascinating um, discussion he has. And the Joe Rogan experience did a great job of clipping this for me. They do clips of their podcast, which is exclusive to Spotify right now, but they um, post the clips on YouTube. And it was really convenient for me not to... um, listen to the entire three-hour interview. I was able to just listen to a couple of the clips this month, and they did a great job of um, really putting out the highlights of um, their discussions. So this is Alex Berenson, and uh, asking more questions, answering uh, previous questions that we've all had. So I'll, um, I'll play it, and I'll be back in about 12 minutes. So that's one issue with the death counting is that so many of the people so, – so let's say you're and, – and I urge people – one of the things that I've done a couple of times on Twitter that always gets an interesting response is you can go look at coroner's reports, especially in Milwaukee where they put them all online, of people who've died. So you can actually see the people who have died of COVID, and you'll see how sick they are for the most part. I'm talking about people in their 80s and 90s who have multiple severe comorbidities. Yeah. So in that case, it's really hard to tell. Did this person die with COVID 
or from COVID. You know, if my heart is failing and my kidneys are failing and I get this thing and I die the next day, okay, I died. Did I die? Did I die with COVID or did I die two weeks before I would have died anyway? And we're counting that as from COVID. Or maybe even a year oh. before you would have died anyway. But the yes. 2.6 comorbidity factors, that's the average that's, right, for people that died of COVID. That's correct. That's, died with COVID. Well, that's a good way of saying it. Again, it's very, very hard to distinguish with and from in these right. cases of people who are really sick. Now, sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes you can say, again, a 50-year-old who is relatively healthy gets COVID. They died. They died from COVID. Okay, yeah. COVID killed them. We can agree about that. But at the at many of the cases are hard to hard to understand, or not hard to understand, but hard to distinguish. And I'll make one more point about deaths. Very, very, very important point. PCR testing. You 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 know you I know I know you know you know what this is. Yes. But you you know you you look for a sample of the virus in you know usually it's in a, in the nose. You multiply it uh, and you run a cycle where it doubles over and over and over again. And when it gets to a certain point, uh, they actually, it's, it's actually incredible technology. It's sort, of, it's sort of magical. But they add a fluorescent marker to it. And at some point, if you can see the fluorescence, it's considered a positive sample. Okay. Here's the thing. A 40-cycle PCR test means that you are multiplying the original, any original viral material in that sample by one trillion times. Okay, so a single viral particle that you pick up becomes one trillion particles. It is very, very easy to find virus in people when you're running a PCR cycle at that, at that level. Okay, it does not mean necessarily that they're very sick at the time. It doesn't even mean that they have active virus in their bodies at the time. They could have a piece of virus that... Uh, that that the that the original sample is picking up and multiplying by 40x. Okay, it's clear by the way when people have a low threshold, let's say 20 times. Let's say it only takes 20 cycles. That's a million multiplications. If you're positive at 20 cycles, you're pretty sick. If you're positive at 25 cycles, you're probably pretty sick. If you're positive at 30 cycles, maybe not. 40 cycles, it doesn't really mean anything. It means that you have you know, you have this one bit of virus in you that they've managed to find. Does it mean you're contagious? It probably doesn't mean you're contagious. I don't when, like that word. I what? don't like that word probably. Well, I'm around grandma. I, I don't like to say never unless I'm sure, okay? Right. So when I say probably, it usually means never, right. but I just don't like saying I understand. That. Okay. When we count deaths, the states have a procedure, most states. They look at positive tests, and they match them with death certificates, okay? So let's say you had a positive test, okay, in t tomorrow, okay? And let's say it was 38 cycles. They're not going to tell you that, but it was 38 cycles, okay? You are not very sick at all with COVID, okay? But you're in a registry somewhere. Your name's in a registry. A month and a half later, you die. Let's say you get hit by a car. That will still initially come up as a positive COVID death because you had a positive test and you died within a specific amount of time after having that test. But they don't distinguish from a violent accident? Not, not initially. Now, the, some of the states are trying to clear this up, but let's say you died of a heart attack, Joe. Okay, a heart attack is a potential you know, outcome of COVID. You're always going to be on there if you died of a heart attack. So you're saying that if you have this tiny amount of COVID in your system, you never wind up getting sick but yet you have a heart attack a couple of weeks later, three, four weeks later, 
they will still call that a COVID death, even though you never got sick from COVID. 100%. That doesn't seem smart. Uh, the idea is to capture deaths as broadly as possible. The idea is this is a you know, serious illness, and we want to know every possible person who's died from it. We don't do this with any other illness. Is it because they don't have the resources to differentiate between the people that have died from heart attacks where it's clear, oh, we looked at the person, they, they had a very small amount of the virus in their system, four weeks later, there's no way they were sick from that. But is it, that... It's a function of decisions that have been made along the way. So they could have set the PCR threshold at lower. They could have set it at 30. They were aware from almost the beginning of this issue that, you know, you can find a comment from Fauci in July talking about this, okay? But, and, and certainly, and, you know, and, and certainly they knew well before this. The idea was we want to know sort of as broadly as possible how many people have this. And then secondarily, we want to define deaths from COVID as broadly as possible. And what is the, what is the level set at currently? Um, different states have different levels, but in most places it's 37 to 40 cycles, which again means that a, a lot of those people at the high end are not sick, and they, they certainly had COVID at some point, but they probably don't have it anymore. Here's, here's the other reason to do this, Joe. If you, if you set it really high, you're going to capture people on the way in just as they're getting sick. So if you're truly afraid of we want to quarantine everybody really early, then you have to set the threshold really high. So, so that, to the extent there's a logic behind it, that's the logic behind it. But it has all these negative side effects. Um, so there was one other point I wanted to make, but I, I'll remember it in a second. But. So the negative side effects would be that the, they, they're inflating the number of people that not just have it but die from it because of the fact that they're making sure that these deaths that get linked within a certain time period. What is the time period? So in some states it's 30 days, in some states it's 60 days. I don't know if it's more than 60 anywhere, um, but, but the states are sort of allowed to define it. Oh, here's okay. So there's a negative for the person who's tested positive because you then have to isolate yourself. You can't work. You know, you're scared. Um, and then there's this negative for society with the death counts later. Right. But isn't that that negative that you have to isolate yourself and you can't work? That seems very rational because if you do test, like let's say you're on the way in, you catch it, you have a little tiny bit of it in your system, and they're like, you have to isolate, you have COVID. Yeah. What if that person just went out and started drinking, got run down, the COVID multiplies, and then they have a full-blown case, and then they start spreading. So, so that is, look, realistically, can that happen sometimes? Yes. That seems like that would happen a lot. Well, it doesn't happen that much because at 37, you're asymptomatic, so you're not going to know unless you have some reason to be tested. But isn't there a significant amount of spread from asymptomatic people? So this is another argument that we don't... There's asymptomatic spread. It looks to be very rare, although, you know, now Fauci is saying it's not so rare. There's pre-symptomatic spread. Pre-symptomatic spread appears to be more real. We need another person other than Fauci. That's the <laughs> one guy. We do. Like, everyone says, Fauci says, like, we have this guy. Yes. Uh, let, let, me, let me say one more thing about death count, yeah. okay? Okay, back in March and April, people said COVID deaths are being undercounted. We don't, we're not doing enough testing. Right. There's all these people dying. They're being called pneumonia deaths. It's probably COVID. That was probably true at the time, especially in New York and New Jersey. You, you can look and you can see the number of what are called excess deaths, more people dying than you would expect in a normal year, was higher than the number of COVID deaths. Okay? And a lot of those deaths were in people who had pneumonia. Okay, so that looks like, hey, we didn't even, you know, this is even worse than we thought. We're capturing 
we're not even capturing everybody who died. Okay, but that was March and April. Let's talk about what's happening now. We know the PCR tests are going to capture a lot of people who aren't sick anymore and who maybe never were sick. We know that some of those people are going to be classified as COVID deaths. If they, again, I'm 88, I, I somehow, you know, was asymptomatic a month ago, I, but I got a positive PCR test, now I die because I'm 88, that's a COVID death, okay? What we're seeing now in the United States and certainly in, in Europe, we don't have data as good in the U.S. from the last couple of weeks, but we have some pretty good data from Europe and the U.K., is that the number of COVID deaths when you add it to the number of non-COVID deaths, is not as high as the overall number of deaths you would expect. So what does that tell you? That tells you that some non-COVID deaths are probably being classified as COVID deaths these days. So back in March and April, there were more people dying than you would have thought based on the number of COVID deaths. Now there are fewer people overall dying than you would think based on the number of COVID deaths. And I got to add one more thing. I know this gets complicated, but it's worth, it's worth thinking about we also know that a significant number of people are dying from lockdown. Okay. There are, and, and, the, and the number one way you can look at that is overdose. Okay. Overdose deaths in this country have always, you know, they've been terrible for years. This year, it looks like they're off the charts. So if 20 or 30,000 people, and that's probably a reasonable estimate, 20 or 30,000 extra people are dying this year from overdose alone, that's, that should push up the number of overall deaths, and yet, when you and then if you'd add the COVID deaths, it should be even higher. When you put these three things together, right now you're getting fewer deaths than you would expect. Again, what I'm trying to say is, I know that this math can sort of seem complicated and the stacking can seem complicated, but right now it looks like a significant number of deaths that are being classified as COVID would have occurred anyway and are just sort of being shifted into the COVID pile. And that was not so true a few months ago. So when you see 3,000 people died today of COVID, until we get the true mortality figures for this year, for, for November and December, we're not going to know if that's really true. Okay, that was Alex Berenson on the Joe Rogan Experience, and that was titled, uh, Alex Berenson Details How Corona Deaths are counted and I got that clip from YouTube and didn't need to edit too much. I just um grabbed the clip and um took took out the intro and the outro and uh but it is available on YouTube and um the entire uh long form of the Joe Rogan experience is now on Spotify and I've had a devil of a time getting um Spotify to play on my devices so YouTube it is um, for getting my dose of um, Joe Rogan. Another really interesting um, podcast that I've heard this month was the Kunstler cast. And um, William, William Howard Kunstler is an author, a reporter, a really cool novelist. He wrote these books called uh, A World Made by Hand which are like a futuristic uh, apocalyptic uh, like prepper type of uh, series, which I enjoyed. It came out about five years ago. But he has a podcast, and this is episode 338. And um, it's an urban planner that he's friends with, and I'll come back with the name of him. Um, but I made a clip of it, and it's absolutely wonderful because they discuss how localism, how we're going to solve a lot of problems by being a localized community. 
and cooperating with each other on a local basis. And that's how we're going to go forward. It's not going to be some big government that's going to come in and rescue us. We're going to have to uh, pull together, just like in the This Week in Virology um, clip that I played, that we're all going to have to learn to cooperate with one another and make agreements and um, um, be happy to disagree, <laughs> disagree with one another. But I really found it uh, cool to know um, as far as uh, urbanism now is becoming smaller and we're designing communities where there are um, less rules but we're in agreement with one another um, not to report on each other. <laughs> but this is a pretty cool clip and it details a lot of how um, a lot of uh, places around the United States are um, engaging in this type of guerrilla herbal urban, urbanism. Well, there's a great deal. In fact, you can say that most of the operational things that need to be done actually occur at the level of urban design. So if we start at the smallest scale, because of the harshness of the future, we need much more complex dwelling arrangements, you know, something uh, much more complex and agile than the single family house. We're going to need compounds, you know, which is a historical phenomenon. Everybody lived in a compound, whether in a palazzo in Italy or a rancho in New Mexico, there were complex living arrangements where you assemble your society at a small level. For example, there would be, I would say, a principal family. And then there would typically be three generations of people living there. Of course, the children and the grandchildren, perhaps the grandparents and the grand, they all had a role. The grandparents often were the teachers. And then the younger people were the caregivers of the grandparents. But you also had uh, workers. You had, uh, you had young men who actually did the hard work for the family. And you had women who did other things and so forth. But, and there was, of course, the extended family. By the way, the men, among other things, the young men, actually provided security. Mm -hmm. So what you did is you assemble, you assemble the society with the compound rather than the house. At the very smallest scale, you get to assemble your society. And then beyond that, there is something which is... I would say the, something that if you want to imagine physically would be a four block area. You know, within four blocks, within let us say a hundred families, you should be able to make certain decisions about what your playground is like or whether you want to, you want to have a one room schoolhouse or whether you want to have, let's say, a security detail. You know, some, you know a couple of, of people who walk around at night or you could actually arrange for some that's a nice number to arrange for some real growing of food, for example. You know, that's, that's, that's an interim scale that is much smaller than going to City Hall. Yeah, a lot you of know, the things that we are going to have to do in the future actually require many hands uh, to work, including, uh, you know, gardening yeah. is actually pretty arduous. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it shouldn't be all lobbying at the highest level. Like if you want to install a small playground in my own city of Coral Gables, I can't do it until I go to City Hall. I'll probably take years to change policy. You know, policy for the whole city. It's, it's just so, there's so little agility. Then, of course, there is City Hall. But then beyond it, you have to go higher and say, hey, what about my, my watershed? Where's my water coming from? 
where is my food shed? Where is my food coming from? You know, how far do I have to go out to get my ordinary daily needs of food? And then there's, of course, the energy shed. Where is my energy coming from? You know, what happens if the lines are clipped? What happens if there's a fire? What happens if there's an enormous rolling brownout? You know, so there's energy shed, water shed, you know, security shed. There are lots of sheds, and they don't always, they're not the same scale. Each shed has a different, uh, a different radius, a different region, and that has to be understood. But, of course, everybody's working at the worldwide shed. You know, really, when you think about when you when you speak to the climate change people, or Greta and all those all those people, <laughs> they want to save everybody forever worldwide. You know, that's not a shed. That's impossible. Yeah. And so you want to bring it down to something that's doable, that's under your control, and that empowers you. Well, this leads us to the question of uh, what does the term subsidiarity mean? You know, it's a term. It has a definition. It actually, to my surprise, it began, it uh, took currency in the 30s. And it means that decisions should be made at the most local level that can competently make them. Okay, so there are decisions that happen at the scale of the household, decisions at the scale of the block, decisions at the scale of the neighborhood. And of course, it goes all the way up to decisions at the scale of the nation, and decisions at the scale of the United Nations. Right now, there's a tendency to push everything up to the level of the United Nations. You know, oh, when for you, sure. you know, you're working uh, on a green belt in England, you know, which I've done as a planner, and who decides, well, some faceless person in Brussels. And I'm saying, I'm talking about a potato field here. This is a potato field, yes, but it's been designated by Brussels as a green belt. You can't even talk about this potato field. <laughs> somebody drew a line. They say, well, that's wrong. And yes, there's a tendency to move everything upwards, but actually it should uh, be devolved downwards. By the way, the correct way of thinking about subsidiarity is that the power to make decisions is granted upwards by the locals. Okay, it's a grant. You, you decide for me. Right now, it's also at the highest level that we have to beg to have it devolved to us mm -hmm. when it's really our right. Well, it does it, seem that in the natural course of things, there is going to be a sharp devolution of governance from the national to the local, whether we like it or not. In the essence of, of, of governance, things thrive. I, you know, you've heard me say this, but, you know, uh, there's the, the extraordinary phenomena of Detroit's revival. And people don't understand why that's happening. There are many cities that in fact are not reviving, that are just as decrepit as Detroit, or almost. What happened is when Detroit went bankrupt, everybody knows they couldn't pay for policemen. But guess what? They couldn't pay for, for bureaucrats either. Yeah, building they inspectors. Yeah, they couldn't pay for building, building inspectors. So the young people decanted from Brooklyn and started, and started acting with their natural youthful energy and talent in a place that, in which the bureaucracy couldn't stop them. Yeah. It was like way back. It was like back in Soho in 1960, when the bureaucracy was so light because it was such a, I would more or less abandoned area that people could do things, and that's what's happening in Detroit. And that's where the whole thing of subsidiarity, in my mind, started. I said, "Wow, just remove government regulation, and people will act actually mostly in their own self-interest." 
Yeah, well, you had quite a, a long experience with battling regulation in uh, 40 years of proposing to government agencies. Rewriting regulations instead of fighting them. But you know what? In the end, I would say that in the end, uh, it's a never-ending battle. And it's better to not alert them. I have learned a lot about how to bypass regulations. Yeah. There was an initiative called Lean Urbanism, which was highly funded by the Knight Foundation. And it was a three-year program. It was very, very well funded. In the first year, we, we went everywhere to find out where people were bypassing rules, hacking systems. And then we, we established, the second year, we established what the protocols were for doing so. Like, how do you get things done? Well, bypassing, well, well, using the loopholes that the government gives you. And then the third one, we're now, before the pandemic, we were implementing all over. And of course, now we've stopped. Yeah, well, the uh, term for that, as I remember, uh, was uh, guerrilla urbanism. Yeah, it was, it was guerrilla, exactly. Instead of, instead of lining up our vast army against their vast army, which is what I spent the first three years doing, you know, building the CNU and get, just getting an incredibly elite force but a very formal force, you know, to take on the formal force of government regulation, mm. you know, the stranglehold of it. And then I realized you can operate like a gorilla, <laughs> just attack and withdraw and hide in the woods. and They can't find you. <laughs> you know, bureaucrats really don't like to leave their desk. Uh -huh. I mean, it's so physical. Like if a neighbor doesn't turn you in, you can do whatever you want. So what you do is you negotiate with your neighbors as to what the conditions are that would allow you to operate. You say, you know, I won't start making noise till nine o'clock. You know, I won't park uh, trucks here or there. You tell me. And then by the time when the time comes for you to do your construction or renovation, I'll do the same for you. Mm -hmm. And no one calls the bureaucrats and the bureaucrats are not out you know, on the streets trying to find you. They don't want to find trouble. It's just, you know, that kind of insight. You say, wow, they like to stay on their desks. <laughs> they just respond to complaints. Now, that might seem like nothing, but it's huge. Yeah. It is huge. Now, there's one thing, though. You have to do things according to code. You have to follow the code. Because if they do bust you and you haven't followed the code, they'll make you tear it out. Uh -huh. So sure. when they do bust you and you say, no, I've done it all properly, they'll say, okay. Okay, that was Andres Duane in a conversation with James Howard Kunstler on the podcast, The Kunstler Cast, episode 338. And I found that to be a really enlightening um, highlight of the conversation. Uh, James Howard Kunstler has a Patreon account, and he's um, an author who lives in upstate New York. And if you'd like to um, look him up on Patreon, you can support him and his endeavor to um, bring out these really interesting uh, conversations uh, through his podcast. So I think for the last um, clip that I'll introduce, I'm going to bring on Brene Brown with a conversation she had with Oprah Winfrey on the Super Soul Sunday. And again, I think this was um, just a, a YouTube clip that I came across, and it was beautiful the way um, – Brene was talking about who do you sh share your shame and your stuff with? And you really have to be very selective. And um, I like the way she words it, like you have to let people earn it before you really um, bring them into your inner um, 
into your inner life and you have to um trust is a beautiful thing i want to trust others and you have to um go through sort of a process to gain trust in others and people prove themselves and earn your trust and you have uh, friends for life or friends for long periods of time so this is Brene Brown with Oprah Winfrey. You know what means the most to me? What means the most to me is if I go to someone with my shame story, and my whole mantra is you share with people who've earned the right to hear your story. Damn, that is good. Right? Doggone it. Like, so you good. have to earn the right to hear my story. It's an honor to hold space for me when I'm in shame. Like, and so I want to share. And if I share oh, with someone, We need to just take yeah. pause with that for a moment. Okay. You sh- because this is how people get so messed up and violated. They, it's like the Bible says, casting your pearls before swine. It's you true. Know, offering yourself up to people who don't deserve to have that offering. That's right. And you have to think long and hard about who has earned the right to hear the story and with whom am I in a relationship that can bear the weight of the story. Wow. That is, that is powerful. And if I go to someone and I share it, and they come back with one of those bad, like not helpful, not empathic answers, mm-hmm. and then a week later, or a day later, an hour later, they call and say, I didn't show up for you. You were so much in my stuff. I couldn't, I couldn't be with you in that. That means even more to me. We're not going to do empathy perfectly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to have the right response every time. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It's, it's so overwhelmingly powerful. I have to take a break. I have to just take a break right now. Okay. Okay, so that was Brene Brown with Oprah Winfrey, and it was a a recent Super Soul Sunday um, thing that I found on YouTube, and I wanted to share. I I found it just popped right out at me, and um, that everyone needs to tell their story, and um, oftentimes people have to go to a a professional or a priest who are bound by their occupation. Um, But as we move forward, and we realize that we're not there for others, it is very powerful to go back to the people and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not there for you, and I wish I could have been because I was um, trapped in my own stuff. So that is, really is a powerful thing to go back and tell someone um, that I wish I could have been more, more there for you when you were experiencing something hard. Uh, I've often been very callous to others, and, um, yeah, that's how our love grows, though, is how we, um, you know, reaffirm that we, we want to be there for each other. So this is a beautiful song called uh, Love You Inside Out. It's an old um, BG song, and it's played locally on the local Kappa radio show here on the Big Island, our Kappa radio um, station. It's in rotation And I wanted to share it with uh, this podcast audience. We still have a lot of time left in the show. So I'm going to attempt to take calls. If anyone wants to call in, I will, um, you know, extend the show. But if not, we'll end with uh, Love You Inside Out from an artist here in Hawaii named Naleo Pilmihani. Pilmihani. Naleo Pilmihani. And I believe this can also be um, searched out and found on YouTube. Love you inside out. So I'll be back next month, first Thursday of the month, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, The address to download these uh, through a web browser is blogtalkradio.com backslash Susan Weed.
I'll look for the People's Medicine Show in the episode feed. And I'll um, talk to you again next month.